we're going to be in James 5 today. James 5. It, James 4 is one of the most difficult texts in the book of James, those first 12 verses to understand. James 5, the first six verses are one of the most difficult texts in the book of James to listen to. It's hard to hear. We'll look at it in just a minute. Uh, Alvaro and Raquel, they've both lived here. They've been with us. They've served with us. They're dear to us. Uh, and, and so usually we have a third Sunday for them, and today we couldn't give Alvaro and Raquel as much time as we'd like up here. But I'm going to ask them if they would stay up here after the service. And then it, I know lots of you know and love them. Come on up and see them. They'll be up here. In 62 AD, the author of the book of James was arrested, tried on charges related to speech. Um, maybe the closest parallels in our day would be something like hate speech crime or uh, inciting a riot or treason. And then he was quickly executed. The people who pulled the strings were wealthy landowners and power brokers who saw James as they had seen Jesus before him as a threat to their way of life. It's quite possible um, they were reacting to the kinds of things James says in our text today. Today's text often approached as if it were disconnected from the rest of the letter. In fact, some scholars believe the letter was a, a compilation of previously unrelated writings on ethical and moral themes that were fused by an editor. Other scholars disagree. They believe this section coheres with the rest of the letter and is built on a unified theological theme. I think they're right. Um, but that, that theme did not originate with James, but with Jesus. Everywhere, the name Jesus is only mentioned twice in this letter. But everywhere we look in James, we see Jesus. In every section of the letter, we hear his voice speaking to us. We've already seen that James believed that authentic faith in Jesus will change a person's character and destiny. It transforms a person's attitudes and opens the way for healthy relationships. It alters a person's behaviors, speech, values. But an inauthentic faith doesn't do any of these things. The divide between authentic and inauthentic cuts its way across this entire letter. The divide not only cuts across the letter, it cuts across groups and in, even individuals. Twice James has spoken of the double-minded person, which in the original language is the two-souled person, divided at the deepest level. This is the person who believes and doesn't believe who has been convinced, at least at times, but has never been committed. There's an old story um, preachers like about a high-wire acrobat who walked the wire several times and then proposed walking it again while pushing a wheelbarrow. He asked the crowd how many people believed he could do it, and people enthusiastically raised their hands and applauded, and then he asked who would be the first to ride in the wheelbarrow. And nobody said a thing. James would call those people double-souled. And their mind affirms one thing, but their lives affirm another. As we follow the divide through James's letter, we see there's a certain kind of faith that sits on one side and a different kind on the other. Two kinds of faith, the kind that works and the kind that just talks. 
And two kinds of people, the person who blames God for his troubles and the person who blesses God for his gifts. And as we go further, we discover two kinds of wisdom. That was chapter 3, the wisdom of getting and the wisdom of becoming. Further on, and the divide widens as we go, we find the person who submits to God and the person who really wants to be God. The person who says, thy will be done, and the one who says, my will be done. The person who knows that he or she will be judged, and the person who seems to think he or she is the judge. Into that mix, across that divide, in chapter 5, James introduces money. Now, many scholars and preachers are quick to say that James is not rebuking wealthy Christians. He's rebuking wealthy non-Christians. And you know what? I think they're right. But I don't think James was approaching the subject along those lines. He wasn't thinking Christian or non-Christian. Those probably weren't even operative categories in his mind. He was thinking instead of the two kinds of people, the two kinds of faith, the two kinds of wisdom. If God gives money to the one kind, they'll handle it wisely and do good with it. They'll recognize God as its source and themselves as his servants, tasked with using what he's given in his interests. But if God gives money to the other kind, they'll not think of it as a gift, but as a possession and will get busy trying to secure themselves with it. They'll expend lots of energy and thought in keeping what money they have and getting what money they don't. Their thoughts will turn frequently to money, but not very frequently to God. That is a chief indicator of a heart that's not right. In a moment, we'll read James 5, 1 through 6. First, I want to read a little of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I think you'll hear echoes of it in our text. First, Jesus, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt. That's King James English. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And now this is James, chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion, literally their poison, will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, literally the Lord of armies. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. What we learn, I think if you boil it down, from this passage is that money talks and it's a blabbermouth. It's always talking about the person who has it and for the most part, it's telling the truth. And that way it's like a child talking about his or her parents. Sometimes kids say things that parents just really wish they wouldn't say 
and, and open up windows for others to see into their home. Uh, here, here's an example. One Sunday morning, junior church children learned a song with the line, he has conquered every foe. But their teacher saw that some of them didn't really get that. And so he explained that a foe is an enemy. And he could tell that some of the kids still didn't get it. So he went on to say, the name of, of one of our enemies, our foes, begins with the letter D. And of course, he was talking about the devil. But one of the kids in the family said, oh, I know, you mean the Democrats. <laughs> well, we know what that family talks about at home, right? Money's like that. It talks. It spills our secrets. It's the opposite of the gangster in the movies who says, you can't make me talk. You can't make money shut up. It can't wait to take the stand and testify. As verse 3 makes clear, what people have done with their money will testify for them or against them on the day of judgment. Money's an informer. It discloses what we believe and what we don't. It can say this person believes in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it can also say this person believes he's Lord and that money is Savior. In our text, James takes on the rich. But it ought to be said that the poor can be just as wrong about money as the rich, and sometimes more so. Money tattles on the poor just as it does on the rich. It just doesn't have as much to talk about. But James is not talking to the poor here. He's talking to the rich, but not all the rich. He's talking to those whose money says they're on the wrong side of that divide. They may claim faith or may not, but if they do, it's the faith that talks, not the faith that works. They may believe themselves wise, but it's the wisdom of getting, not the wisdom of becoming. Now, what was money saying about these people? Here's what I think it was saying. It was saying that their hearts were a mess. It was saying that they were on the wrong side of the divide, the side without Jesus. More specifically, the way they handled their wealth betrayed that there was something rotten in their hearts. And it was spreading. As always in the letter of James, he has the words of Jesus in his mind. Jesus understood that our heart goes where we put our treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The people in James 5 hid their wealth like pirates' treasure. And, and it rusted there. Their clothes went into the closet where they didn't wear out but got moth-eaten. These people made the foolish mistake of thinking, in Jesus' words, that a man's life consists in the abundance of his possessions. Notice James's criticism, and this is something that when we read this, we're liable to skip right over it and miss this. His criticism is not that they used their wealth wrongly, at least at this point, but they didn't use it at all. They let it go to waste. The clothes, which in James' day, we don't understand this. We have a different attitude about clothing than they did. But their clothes, which in James' day were part of every wealthy person's portfolio, a poor person might not have a change of clothes. Not even one that they could wear while they were washing the other one. But rich people, part of their portfolio was their clothing. Their clothing didn't wear out. It went to pieces on the hanger where they were kept as a backup to the backup 
to the clothes that they actually wore. Their money rusted, not because it was used, but because it wasn't. These people were so afraid of being in want that they hoarded wealth. They didn't know the Lord as their shepherd, and so they didn't know that they wouldn't be in want, and they feared it. Now, you can be sure of this. If their money wasn't in circulation, if their clothes weren't worn, if their treasures were locked away for safekeeping, the same was true of their hearts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasures are rotting, so is your heart. If your treasures are rusting, so is your heart. It's no wonder John Wesley said, I'd rather burn out than rust out. In verse 3, James says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. As though he can hardly believe they would do such a thing. The way they used or didn't use their money screamed that they didn't have wisdom. They didn't understand what was going on. Hoarding wealth in the last days is like building a storm shelter and then refusing to use it in an F5 tornado because it might not be fully stocked later on when you need it. And when James says in the last days, these really were their last days. Not long after James was executed, he was executed in 62 AD. Not long after that, the wealthy landowners and aristocrats were dispossessed of their holdings, were deprived of their wealth, and most of them were violently killed in a civil war. These people who had him put to death. Their money snitched on them. It said they were so fearful for their future that they didn't care about other people's present. I'll let that one sink in for a moment. So if he's talking to Americans. They figured out ways to keep their money even when it meant depriving others. That's verse 4, and it's something that the Old Testament repeatedly and loudly condemns. The harvesters of verse 4 live from paycheck to paycheck. And since they were day laborers, that meant from one day to the next. Withhold their, to withhold their pay was to rob them and their families of their supper. Yet the rich figured out ways, probably hired managers, to figure out ways to delay paying what they owed or to avoid paying it altogether. While they were sitting at their costly meals, verse 5, they were keeping their employees' money away from them. People who fed their families with the cheapest foods they could find. James says they were fattening themselves up. In Greek, it's they were fattening up their hearts for a feast not realizing that their hearts were going to be the main course. Now, we read that, and we can have different reactions. We might say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. But I don't think that's where we ought to start. I think we ought to ask ourselves a question. So if you could trade places with some wealthy person, would you do it? If you say, I'd do it in a minute, I feel sorry for you.
God wants you to love being you so much that you wouldn't trade places with anyone. And Jesus can show you how to make that a reality. Some of us might jump at the chance to trade places with a rich person. But you know, that's not the way it would work. We wouldn't just be trading places. We'd be trading hearts. It is foolishness to look at people with more money and wish to be like them. Instead, look at people with more heart than you have and intend to be like them, whether they have money or not. Whether you have much or little, take courage and ask what your money is saying about you. Now, there's some ways to do that. Go over your credit card statements. See what you've been buying. Save your receipts and read them over. Examine your bank account and your investments. Does your money say you're fearful? Does it say you don't trust God to take care of you? Does it say you think a lot more about it than you do about God? Does it say you believe your Lord and money is Savior? Listen to what your money says so that you can take steps on the day of judgment so that your money will testify that you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Your money will tell the truth. You know, politicians know that. That's why they're so eager to hide their tax returns. That's why they don't want anybody to know who's contributing to their campaigns, because money tells the truth. What a great thing when it says that you believe in God and Jesus is your Lord. Our money ought to say that. Now, just one last thing. Don't take offense at this. Uh, you know, I, I've been preaching for almost 40 years. I've been around the block so many times I know every crack in the sidewalk. I can number them. And what I've learned is that people get touchy when it comes to money. It might be because they know that money tattles. And they're afraid of what it might say. Or they're afraid that if they really listen to what their money is saying about them, they'll have to change, but they don't know how. But don't worry. Pray. Ask God to search your heart. That's such a brave thing to do. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And tell him that if he wants to use your money to show it to you, You'll welcome that. Anything, God, as long as it leads to an undivided heart that belongs to you. All right, let's bow our heads. I'll give you a moment to see if the Lord wants to say something to you, and then I'll pray.
Lord, if our fantasies are about being rich, I pray that you'll change us in such a way that our dreams are of being like Jesus. We invite you to show us our own hearts as much as we're able to bear. And Lord, to change them. After the likeness of your heart. And we ask this in the name of the one who is the heart of our hearts. Jesus. Amen.